Good morning, everyone. We continue this week with our Love to Stay sermon series based on that uh, book by Adam Hamilton. Uh, this week is the final week of this sermon series. I'm going to be, some of my comments will be based out of chapter 6, uh, which is A Love That Lasts. I'm going to read my scripture in the middle of my sermon. Uh, today we're going to be talking about agape love, this divine selfless kind of love, and how important it is to relationships, especially romantic ones. Let's pray together. Gracious and loving God, bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts, that all would be pleasing and acceptable in your presence, O God. You who are our rock, you who save us. Amen. I begin today with a story that was told to me uh, by a friend. It's a story of a friend of a friend. And they were about to be married, the story goes. Uh, it was the eve of their wedding. And the bride-to-be was driving to the wedding, and a car struck her car on the way there. It was terrible, a bad accident. Physically, for the most part, she was okay, but she suffered severe brain trauma. After she emerged from a coma a few days later or so, it was discovered that she had a severe case of amnesia and could not remember the last few years of her life. Well, it was during that same time period that she came to know the groom. This meant, of course, that she had no recollection of him, and they had to begin their relationship again from square one. The groom had a choice to make. He could stand by his, what once was his fiancée, uh, and nurse her back to health, and essentially restart the entire relationship over from square one, or he could move on. He chose the former. He did stand by her through those years as she put her life back together, and they fell in love all over again, eventually leading to them being married. I'm not sure where they are today, but can you imagine that, having to redo your relationship over from the beginning? What dedication on his part, what faithfulness, that story captures, in a small way, what agape love is. It is this divine love that is a gift from God, freely given to us, that we especially see through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us, and that we are called to also freely give to those around us. And whenever we are being faithful and dedicated, committed, when we're standing by our significant other in thick and thin, through the good and bad times, in sickness and in health, whenever we're sacrificing for the other, other and putting their needs before our own, even when we don't get something out of it, that's agape love at work in our romantic relationships. Well, there are three kinds of love that we see represented in Scripture. Uh, the first is Phileo love, a love of friendship. This is the love that there's mutual benefit in the relationship. The second is eros love. This is romantic sexual love. And then there is agape love. This is the divine selfless love of which I was just speaking. I think that metaphors can be helpful uh, when trying to grasp what is agape love. So if we could go live with the sermon slides... Thank you. So, uh, I like to think of agape love as the sun around which the other loves and desires in our life rotate. If you take away the sun, all the planets get out of order, right? Because there's no gravitational field. Agape love is that gravitational field that holds in check our other loves, love of friendship, love, and romantic love, as well as other desires in our life. When we truly have God's divine love at the center of our lives, it structures how we treat our friends and our spouses. 
If we don't have it, friendship becomes something that is simply exploiting the other person for personal gain. Romantic love is debased down into its primal state. But with agape love, we begin to structure those desires appropriately as God intended us to structure them. The next is that agape love can be like the energizer bunny. And uh, if it is a gift from God, God's grace is what fuels us to love people so selflessly. The more we allow God's grace to come into us, the more it charges our batteries. And it helps us to keep giving and giving and giving and pouring into other people. But uh, the key is that really allowing God into our hearts is what fuels us and allows us to practice this kind of selfless love toward everyone, but especially our significant others. As we turn to our scripture today, I want to set a little bit of background in place before I do the reading. Our scripture comes from Paul's letter to the Colossians, and the city of Colossae was in a unique position that influenced how the church was developing in that city. It was positioned in Greece in between two major trade routes linking the west and the east together. This meant that a diverse range of people came through the city with a a varying degree of beliefs, types of beliefs. In addition, it was primarily a city comprised of Gentiles, but there was a noteworthy Jewish population. This meant that this early house church that is forming in Colossae is itself diverse, made up of people of all different walks, both Jew and Gentile. And as we see in Colossians chapter 1, there's some kind of unspecified heresy with which this house church is struggling. Their identity is at stake. They're in a state of infancy of their faith. And Paul is trying to help them from afar by sending them this letter to help them grasp the tenets of the Christian faith that are so crucial to them surviving and making sure that other religions do not simply pull away all of its members and the Christian faith flame in that city is extinguished. So with that in mind, in Colossians chapter 3 is Paul's discourse called the new life in Christ. In that section... Paul is describing what it looks like when you've really given your heart over to Jesus and the transformation that occurs thereafter. A key, a foundational part of that transformation is living out agape love. He really wants this faith community to grasp this because if they can't understand this selfless kind of love that is a gift from God above and is modeled in Jesus Christ's life, they're going to miss the core of the Christian message. And really not know how to practice the Christian faith as Jesus modeled for us. So with that in mind, I now offer our scripture reading, Colossians chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. Above all, hear that, above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body, and be thankful. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Amen. Uh, That word love is agape, as used there. Remember, in the Greek, we could have phileo, eros, or agape. It is agape love, this divine selfless love of which Paul is writing in this section. It's a love that grants to us a number of gifts. One is this peace of Christ. When we really practice agape love, and put our others' needs before our own. There is this kind of ability that, that there's this serenity that comes over us, that blesses us. 
It's like our hearts are lighter as we go through life. Hate begins to fall away. Negativity begins to fall away. All of a sudden, we just feel love. And that impacts how we see the world and how we act. In addition, our passage says that this agape love binds everything together in one body. Love unifies. It is the sinews that link the body of Christ together. And it can link your marriages, your long-term relationships together. If you really allow agape love to be born in the very center of your relationship, to put God first and allow your love of God to bring the two of you closer together. Now, this agape love is not easy to practice, but that does not make the task futile. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, 300 or so years ago, wrote in his journal in the end years of his life that he was still struggling to practice agape love. He felt that he had expelled from his life all forms of addiction and other noteworthy sins that would stand out. But and it was, he felt that his, his sin in those final years was that he wasn't loving enough. Now, this is a man who had dedicated himself to cultivating good Christian habits, who was giving to the poor. He had but $10, essentially, to his name, 10 pounds when he died. He gave so much, and he made a lot of money in his later years of life because of the donations people were giving him. This is a man who dedicated himself to creating our movement of church that has given birth to the United Methodist Church today. But even at the end phases of years of his life, he struggled with agape love. It's that difficult. But the task is still worth it. It's something in Christian theology, we believe, that we really truly only attain in heaven. And that in heaven, our, our sinful flesh will fall away. And all of a sudden, we'll be able to practice agape love in a way that we can only begin to dream of in this life. But still, in this life, there are glimpses of it. Jesus Christ is the most brilliant example of agape love. God gave to us Jesus so that we as human beings in our limited intellect could see a, a physical example of what it looks like to live out agape love in all areas of our lives. Jesus did this in the most prominent way through his sacrifice. He did not have to die for us, but he did. Thus bringing us into right relationship with God, purifying us of sin, and allowing us to receive that eternal gift of life. That to us, all other examples pale in comparison to that. And when we reflect on Jesus' life and learn more about what it means to be Jesus' follower, we more allow agape love to flow into us and are inspired to practice it in our own lives. Well, we've been looking at in the last several weeks of the sermon series different factors that can make it difficult for couples to stay together. Sometimes one or both couples can feel so drained in the relationship because they've been giving to the other and the demands of life that they just feel completely drained. And you know, they just feel like they need to have their batteries recharged, right? Well, certainly I think all of us in different ways have felt the struggles in life before. But there could be some particularly unique struggles in the middle years of marriage. So Hamilton writes about some of these, and I think it's really helpful. One is he looks at the length of time that a couple is married. This was done from a survey size of about 3,800 people, and it's looking at um, satisfaction by time married. You'll see in the beginning that in the first two years or so, it's 60% are happy. Then we move two to five years, 46%. 
Look there in the middle, 11 to 20 years, 35% are happy, almost half of the happiness of those in the beginning. But then look at this, at the end years, 51 plus years, 68% are happy. Those statistically are the happiest years for a marriage. Let's look at an inverse study. This is divorce rates by length of time married. We see in the beginning a low divorce rate, but then uh, as we move into those that five-year plus, divorce, rate, divorce rates increase. And then in that 11 to 20 year time is the highest percentage of divorce rates. Hamilton comes up with two key reasons that cause these middle years to be so trying for couples. One is work. It's right in these five to 20 year range that work is really demanding. And a lot of time for either one or both spouses has to be in the office, away from the family, while still trying to hold the family together. And this can very easily reduce happiness and uh, lead to all sorts of other problems that can break apart a marriage. Hamilton tells the story that uh, there was one Sunday when he was starting out Church of the Resurrection, a church in Kansas City, where there was 500 people in worship. The next Sunday, 1,200 people in worship. This huge growth in people meant that several church meetings needed to occur to address this spike. There was a lot of people moving into the area at the time, and the church was growing rapidly. This meant that Hamilton was in meetings every night for two straight weeks. By the end of week two, LaVon, his wife, said, enough is enough. We need to have you at home with us. We can't have you at the church every single evening. He said, okay, okay, I understand. I'm going to leave this meeting no matter what at 7 o'clock, I promise. So he goes to church, the meeting starts at 6, 7 o'clock rolls around, the meeting is so important he can't leave, the meeting ends at 9.30. He goes home, and his dinner is nowhere to be found, uh, and the, the door to the bedroom is shut and locked, and wouldn't you know it, the pillow is outside laying on the ground. So he has to paw and whine at the door for Levon to let him in, and she does let him in and understands he was in a tough situation. But he realizes in his heart that night that he was not balancing his work and personal lives effectively and needed to make a change. Another stress factor is children. And children are a wonderful joy in our, in our lives, but it can put a strain on a marriage. And I don't know if this is surprising to anyone, but we see two groups of people here. The left is people without children, they're happier. And the people on the right are people with children, they are not as happy. Um, so, and by about a 20, a 20 percentage point uh, degree. And now it's important to stress, as Hamilton does in the chapter, that if we look at a different study that analyzes um, purpose and meaning in a relationship, the people with children have a higher degree of purpose and meaning in their relationship, as they report, compared to those who did not have children. But those who day-to-day -day are happy is the reverse. And Hamilton tells the story of how when his, uh, his kids were in their teenage years and his work was still very intense, uh, he hit a point where he and Levon were really struggling with their marriage and didn't feel like they were in love any longer. And he found out after the fact that Levon felt the same way. One night he's working in his study and he feels the Holy Spirit nudging him to go out and get a card for Levon. And he thinks, I have nothing to write on that card. But he goes anyway. The Holy Spirit won't leave him alone. So he goes to the store, he purchases a card, and then uh, the Holy Spirit says, get her some flowers. And I mean, he says this is very distinct in his heart. So he gets her some flowers. He's at a 7-Eleven store at like midnight. 
And he goes home and he puts pen to paper about to write on the card and he says, what am I going to write on this? Thanks for nothing? I mean, that's how bad it was for him. But the words start to flow. And while he did not repair his marriage that night, three to four months later of doing these loving actions, even though he didn't feel it, the marriage began to be resurrected, as it were. One morning, he wakes up four months later, and he realizes that he's madly in love with Levon again. His reflection from this story is that all of us can go through these trends of uh, hitting moments in a marriage or a long-term relationship where you don't feel the love, but there can be a way in which you can rediscover the magic that brought the two of you together through, as Hamilton puts it, doing the things again that you did in the beginning. For him, giving that card and flowers was something he did a lot early on in his relationship with Lavon. It meant something to him, but due to the stresses of life, he began to take her for granted. And over time, his love for her waned. But what, what's the magic that brought the two of you together in your relationship? How can you rediscover that magic? Does your relationship need an infusion of God's grace to bring the two of you closer together? Hamilton also reflects with us about how many of us can face similar crises in life. And there can be a cathartic nature to acknowledging that. Eric Erickson writes about how each of us face eight crises in our lives during different phases. For instance, in your 20s, you're piecing together your identity from your childhood with your adulthood. And when you're in the last phase of life, you're reflecting back on all the years of your life and trying to make meaning out of it. Each phase of life, every 10 or so years, has its own crisis, little or big, depending on what's happening in your life at the time. Couples go through this. Work, children, retirement, deaths in a family. These are crises that can tear a relationship apart if the couple is not prepared for it. And that's where I think it's so crucial to, let, to work on agape love in your relationship when the times are good, so that when you do face those crises, you're prepared. Hamilton has some suggestions for us of ways to strengthen our long-term relationships. One is to practice gratitude on a regular basis. When is the last time you said to your mate, thank you, thank you for walking with me in this life, being my partner. I love you. I am so grateful that you're here by my side. Whether it's a spoken word in how you do that or it's through actions or some other way, are you really appreciating your spouse? Do you, are you taking them ever for granted? Have you lost the love in that relationship? Do you need to practice that love again to a point where you can really say those words with meaning? As you could have said maybe five or ten years ago. Another suggestion is being more intentional about, with your time and energy, about placing God at the center of your marriage. Hamilton has spoken, as uh, described to us in previous chapters, about how couples attending church on a weekly basis can cut in half divorce rates. This isn't because just being in church does that. It's the grace you receive when you're here, and it's the reflecting on Jesus' teachings on a weekly basis that can help you practice and bring in agape love into your lives, to really make it a lifestyle. Regular prayer is another key way that we can strengthen our relationships with all people, but especially with significant others. Whatever practicing your faith looks like in your life, I think it's, it's important to bring an intentionality to our faith, not just itself to take our faith for granted and think that we're just going to grow in our faith if we do nothing, 
but be making sure we're saying, where, what am I doing in my life that's really helping me grow in my faith and invest in my relationship with God so that I can grow in my ability to practice divine selfless love with everyone, but especially my spouse. Hamilton likes to ask people who are 50 plus years into a marriage, what has held their relationship together? Often the answer is perseverance and dedication. Well, one time he was visiting a man named Ray and his wife Betty. Ray was on his deathbed. They had been married 60 plus years. And Hamilton asked Ray this question, what's the magic that held the two of you together? Ray said in response, well, Adam, there are three phases to a marriage. The first is the lovebird stage. That's the first 10 or so years of life. When nothing can go wrong, the relationship is perfect. The second are the child-rearing years. And things can be tense, the toughest years, but there's also a beauty to them. And then the retirement years. These, he said to Adam, are the happiest years of all. Uh, and we saw that in the statistical uh, graph we looked at a little bit earlier by length of time married. And I think about the young couples that I work with in my premarital counseling sessions, and almost all of them uh, that I've worked with, they, they often score, there's an indicator on, we, we use this thing called prepare and rich. It's, and it, it's an aggregate of survey results from thousands of couples over the last 20 or 30 years. And it compares the couple's um, answers to the answers made by thousands of other couples. And one that a lot of young couples score high on is seeing your relationship through rose-colored glasses. And I go to couples and I say, look, I mean, it says here that you're, you're really seeing your relationship in a bit of a skewed fashion. Just know this is normal. They say, pastor, that's not accurate at all. Our relationship is perfect. And, I mean, these are real conversations, and it's, it's difficult when you're in that lovebird stage to realize that, no, you're going to face some tough times ahead, and you need to be prepared for them, and realize that this lovebird stage is not going to go on forever. It may come back, but you can face some tough times, especially when work and children come into the mix. Well, as I hear Ray's story, something I reflect on is maybe Ray and Betty had to go through all those tough years of work and children and other struggles to learn how to practice agape love better with each other. And then when those stress factors fall away in the later years of life, all of a sudden you're not quite as stressed and you understand yourselves and God's love better. And that can lead to that increased happiness in those final years. Ray reflected with Adam that those last years with Betty were the happiest of their entire marriage. Friends, let us open our hearts and receive God's agape love more fully into our lives. Let us not take for granted one another, but truly try to say words of love and admiration to each other, and especially to give God thanks for the special blessing that is our significant others. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.